Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner-McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Most local students have not been to school in person for almost a year. We're going to talk to Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Billy Jean-Louis about the mental health impacts of virtual learning. And in the second half of the show, we're going to talk to Cayetano de Campos Lopez from the Community Climate Collaborative about a few issues at the intersection of equity and climate in our community and policies that might make Charlottesville a more affordable and a more sustainable place to live. So today we're joined by Billy Jean-Louis from Charlottesville Tomorrow, and we're going to talk about how this pandemic is impacting the mental health of local students and young people. And I'm not a student anymore, but I got to say, I definitely identify with a lot of the feelings of isolation and apathy. It's a tough time. How are you feeling these days and reporting on mental health? Um, I'm doing all right. So with mental health, I don't think that's something that's only affecting children or teenagers. This is something that affecting, you know, everyone since the pandemic. So it was imperative for me to do the story. I've explored doing stories like that on the adult side of it. But then I felt like it was imperative that I also do this story to just explore how children as well as teenagers were coping with this pandemic. Yeah, and I think some of the lessons that we'll talk about and um, advice that you got from mental health professionals like definitely applies to adults as well as to young people. So I want to start off by asking you to describe what it is that some of these kids are going through, um, and then we'll kind of move on to recommendations that you got from experts and how listeners can help the young people in their life get through this time. So can you describe what is currently going on in the local public schools? Are classes in person? Are they virtual? Some combination? So I had the chance to talk to, you know, the city schools, and they're telling me how Uh, students across all grade levels that they're experiencing difficulties and these things are depression, anxiety, disengagement. And so when the school year first started, everyone was virtual. And then there was an outcry from parents who have children who are special needs. They wanted, you know, the division to address these needs. And then the division went ahead and said they were going to accommodate children who are special needs in person. So that's what's going on right now. All children are virtual, but then they made the exception to accept children who are special needs. And is that in the city schools or the county schools or both right now? For special needs, uh, that's that's both uh, the city as well as the county. But then like the details in terms of like who is in, you know, going to school in person in the county schools. I think at one point they were not only taking children who are just special needs. They were also taking children who speak English as a second language, among other, you know, among other children who may be less disadvantaged, including those who may not have access to uh, adequate Internet at home. So you write that there's been an uptick in parents seeking mental health services for children and adolescents. What symptoms are people noticing? So the symptoms that they're noticing is just like um, if you see your child is just not 
doing the things that they used to enjoy, right? Like they're not taking care of themselves. These things could include whether the child is just not taking care of his or her personal hygiene and things like that. So these are the things that parents ought to uh, look for in terms of like uh, the warning symptoms. What about in terms of academics? Like if, if kids are starting to struggle with mental health, what might teachers be on the lookout for? So essentially what teachers are to be looking out for is just if they have been participating in classes, right? If they're, if they're missing uh, assignments, uh, things like that. So whenever these things pop up, these are things that, you know, uh, teachers uh, should be looking after. So are these concerns new because of virtual learning or do experts think, you know, these underlying mental health concerns have, have been around? Um, what role is virtual learning playing in this? Well, you know, in talking to the schools, one of the things that they told me was their children are experiencing isolation. That's what's impacting them. And so at a recent school board meeting, there was a parent as well as a pediatrician who said something along the lines that in her 17 years of practice in Charlottesville, she has never seen such a severe mental health crisis. So it is definitely related to the current situation with the COVID pandemic. So given that, does it look like the school systems will bring students back to in-person learning this semester? So the plan right now is to bring the younger children to uh, the school buildings starting March 8th. Jennifer McKeever was the only board member who was advocating to not only bring the younger children back to the school buildings, but like bring all, you know, children uh, back to the schools. And how do teachers feel about going back to in-person learning? You know, that's a terrific question. I am trying to find some time to essentially talk to some teachers uh, and get their perspective and like ask what made you want to go teach in person, although there are some teachers who are very hesitant to going in person. So I think that will make a terrific story just to get the voices of teachers kind of thing. Yeah. And in our last episode, we talked to Jesse about the vaccination process. And, you know, she pointed out teachers are in Group 1B, which the state has opened up. But, you know, half the population of the state is in 1B. So we want to get teachers vaccinated, but there's not enough right now. You know, many parents, many parents are very happy that this is how it is. The fact that they're prioritizing teachers to get their vaccines before people who are even high risk. So the the school division essentially, you know, trying to get these teachers their vaccines, that initiative has not met with resistance. You know, according to the school board, the last school board meeting, there were parents talking about how they were very happy with the fact that these teachers are going to be prioritized. So if the schools do open up in person at some point this semester, will parents have an option for virtual learning or will all students go back to in-person school? So in terms of like who gets to go in person, they're not required. No one is required to sending their children in person. Is there a lot of demand from parents? Like do a lot of parents want to send their kids back to in-person school or are they more comfortable with virtual right now? So uh, in my previous reporting, 
I did get the numbers of like the you know how many people wanted to send their children to in person like with this new decision because things are uh, changing a lot so I think what I have to do is just like go back to the school division and ask what are these numbers like how many people have said yeah we're going to be sending our children you know to in person so getting back to the mental health side of things, um, if you start noticing these feelings of hopelessness or difficulty getting out of bed, your kid isn't enjoying things they used to, what do mental health experts suggest that you do to help them? Good question. And so, uh, you know, in talking to, you know, experts, they're saying that every little things should be praised you know, your child is showing engagement, like whatever uh, the child is doing that's positive. Um, you know, experts are encouraging parents to praise these kids for what they're doing. Uh, in addition to that, another thing that they can do is try to find connections for them, you know, in a safe place where they can, you know, go play with children in the neighborhood. Or even sometimes, you know, have them talk to family members. And it could be you know, something like uh, a video call. One thing in the article that, that it said was, you know, like build things like that into your routine so you don't have to plan it every week. You know, like maybe your kids go to the park every Wednesday and spend outdoor time with masks on with other kids and you don't have to plan that every week, but it's something that they can look forward to. Um, so a lot of parents are working all day or can't work from home. What resources are out there for parents who just really need some help for their kids with virtual learning and childcare? Um, you mentioned one of these virtual learning centers. Do you want to shout out the names of some of them? So there are, you know, several places that are essentially helping with virtual learning. And you have International Neighbors that's serving um, immigrant families. You have the Boys and Girls Club, and then you have, you know, YMCA. So um, one more nonprofit that's also helping out the abundant life. So there are great resources out there sort of like, you know, stepping in to help our parents. So there is some good news. The city is hiring more mental health providers to work with students in the schools. What will be the role of these new engagement assistants? So talking to the city schools, one of the things that they told me was in hiring all of these professionals, one of the thing that specifically these people would be doing is reaching out to the uh, you know to children who are not engaged with virtual learning you've written before about how hard it can be for black and brown people in this area to find counselors of color and mental health experts who understand the impact that racism has on mental health have the schools addressed this part of the mental health puzzle you know, I've been reporting, you know, in Charlottesville for the past two years. I have never heard of a program dedicated to black children uh, in the city schools to help them with their mental well-being. But there might be a program and I'm not aware of it. I do know that they worked, um, the city schools, they do a lot of work with uh, Region 10. But the details in terms of like, is there something dedicated to children of color I am not aware of these details. Yeah, and I'm also thinking about, you know, the Albemarle County schools have a huge population of students for whom English is not a first language. So, you know, having mental health resources available in multiple languages is really important for those students and families, too. 
So you've been reporting on mental health here for a while. What other stories do you think are out there? What what other mental health concerns should people be looking into and are you looking into? Um, I think since I've, you know, started, you know, reporting on in the mental health crisis here in Charlottesville, one of the things I noticed was the fact that just recently um, I did a piece on the UVA Equity Center. And then there is the fellow who is trying to bring a mental health center in Charlottesville specifically for black for the black community here in Charlottesville. So this is something that, you know, I definitely feel like people in Charlottesville should be paying attention to. The fellow, her name is Myra Anderson. You know, she doesn't have like a time frame when that center could be built in Charlottesville. But at the same time, I do know that she has been doing a lot of like the behind the scenes in terms of like, you know, finding a a physical place and things like that. So I would encourage the black community here in Charlottesville to pay attention to that center because it'll try to like sort of like fill the void. Yeah, we'll link that article in the in the show notes so that people can read it and learn a little bit more about that project. Of course, of course. Thank you for doing that. That will be that will be much appreciated. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Billy. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Billy Jean-Louis is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures, and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. In our next segment, our production assistant, Sarah Howarth, talked to Cayetano de Campos Lopez. He's the director of climate policy at the Community Climate Collaborative here in Charlottesville. And he talked us through the area's plans to unite climate and equity solutions, especially in the areas of housing and transportation. My name is Cayetano de Campos Lopez. I am the director of climate policy of the Community Climate Collaborative. I'm a resident of Charlottesville. And can you describe the Community Climate Collaborative? The Community Climate Collaborative mission is to catalyze climate action at the community level through collaboration programs and advocacy, which directly reduce climate pollution and elevate the climate leadership of Virginia communities. He says there are a lot of organizations that promote climate solutions in big cities, but the Community Climate Collaborative is fairly unique in that it focuses on the impact that smaller communities can have on climate. There aren't many organizations that have the sole focus of engaging with small localities, and the Community Climate Collaborative does precisely that, even more so with a locality in Virginia, in a southern state, etc. This is very unique what we're trying to do with small localities. The Community Climate Collaborative is working with Charlottesville and Albemarle to help them reach the climate goals they set back in 2019. Recently, in 2019, Charlottesville and Albemarle set their long-term climate goals for 2030 and 2050, stating that the city and the county are going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or climate emissions by 45% by 2030 and 100% by 2050. The Collaborative has recently been working on a policy proposal at the intersection of affordable housing and climate. One of the policies that we have 
proposed for the city was a policy called the Voucher Energy Efficiency Pilot. So the voucher in that policy name is housing vouchers. Quick sidebar on housing vouchers. In addition to public housing and nonprofit affordable housing, some low-income people are able to rent a place to live on the private market with the help of a subsidy from the government. That's called a voucher. As of this summer, it's now illegal for a landlord to discriminate against voucher recipients. But historically, voucher recipients have had a hard time finding housing on the private market. This policy from the Climate Collaborative hopes to incentivize landlords to accept voucher recipients by offering landlords money to improve the energy efficiency of their units if they agree to accept a voucher recipient as a tenant. This policy, what it did was giving landlords forgivable grant of $10,000 for them to make energy efficiency improvements in the unit, in the building where the voucher recipient would live. And this way we were coupling climate solutions with equity. This is one of the ways we did that. In addition to possibly increasing access to affordable housing, this policy would also lower the electricity bills of future tenants. One of the key things the city should do is help these households being capable of reducing their energy costs, hence energy efficiency and solutions like that, which again are a climate solution. In a previous study, the Community Climate Collaborative found that low-income households paid disproportionately more for energy than middle- and high-income households, largely because of old, inefficient appliances, inadequate insulation, and environmental factors like uneven distribution of shade and tree cover. Another priority for the Collaborative is studying transportation, equity, and climate here in Charlottesville. DeCampos-Lopez says this is also related to affordable housing because many people live far away from their jobs in Charlottesville because the housing costs are lower. But then they have to commute a long distance in a car, which is both expensive and bad for the climate. So now we are working with a transportation and equity project with the same goal of trying to raise awareness in terms of how transit solutions, so public transportation, etc., are key. And again, perhaps you're living in a place that your housing costs are lower, but when you couple with your transportation costs, then you are again in a very unaffordable situation. DeCampos Lopez says that a quarter of Virginia's greenhouse gas emissions come from personal vehicle use. Nearly 50% of Virginia's greenhouse gas emissions come from the transportation sector. It's true that this includes airplanes, this includes trains, it includes trucks. But when we are talking about light-duty vehicles, so residential type of transportation, this accounts for half of that. So one quarter of total Virginia's emissions. When we are thinking about reaching a goal of really being climate-friendly, transportation is going to be key. That's for sure. So what about electric vehicles? I feel like I see a lot of Teslas and plug-in hybrids when I'm driving around Charlottesville. But I always wonder if electric cars are really a more sustainable option, since our electricity is produced by some renewable sources, but also coal and natural gas. But DeCampo Lopez says that our electricity will likely become a lot more sustainable in the next few decades. Last year, the state already committed to being carbon neutral in the electric sector by 2050. One of the ways of making as much as we can everything carbon neutral is just electrifying everything as much as we can. If everybody electrifies their natural gas consumption and their transportation models and etc., since the grid is going to be carbon neutral, 
likely a great part of the entire economy is going to be carbon neutral. For these reasons, the collaborative and other climate groups are calling on the state to raise the fuel economy standards for all vehicles sold in Virginia. It's quite simple. The idea is that low emission vehicles are vehicles that have higher fuel economy, meaning they can do more miles with less fossil fuel. Then another aspect from equity. As I mentioned before, a great part of low-income households' cost of living is associated with how much they pay for transportation. And how much they pay for transportation is highly associated with how many fuel they are consuming for their daily needs of traveling. So if you are raising the bar of what's the minimum fuel economy that vehicles in Virginia must have, you are simply asking for manufacturers to sell in Virginia cars that are more efficient, that can do more with the same amount of fuel. And that's going to be better for them in terms of their transportation costs. Not only would this help lower the cost of getting an electric or hybrid vehicle, but it's much cheaper to fuel an electric car than a gas one. DeCampos Lopez says the electricity cost to charge an electric vehicle is approximately one-third the cost of gas. When we are talking about electric vehicles, they also have e-gallon cost, which is kind of electric gallon. It's an approximation. It's one-third of the cost of regular fuel. Importantly, this push for higher fuel economy standards will also have positive health benefits. Low-income communities and communities of color disproportionately feel the effects of air pollution by vehicle emissions. When we talk about equity, we can bring other aspects. First, health. A recent report from Virginia Coalitions for Climate Action, VCCA, showed how the health of Virginians can be hugely affected by emissions from the transportation sector. They showed that the health costs associated with transportation in Virginia alone add up to nearly $750 million per year. Also, air pollution and the associated health costs disproportionately impact low-income and minority communities where respiratory illness is correlated with higher exposure to emissions from fossil fuel vehicles. The report also mentions that Virginia could significantly reduce health care costs by implementing low-emission vehicles standards and zero-emissions vehicles standards. DeCampos Lopez says the location of power plants and energy infrastructure also has a major impact on air quality. The environmental justice movement we started 30 or 40 years ago, more or less, with residents from areas where power plants used to reduce a lot their quality of their neighborhoods. And in most cases, the power plants or these sources of pollutants, they were placed there after the neighborhood was there because it was a low-income neighborhood, perhaps less empowered somehow. And these organizations felt more comfortable polluting there. Perhaps the land was cheaper, but also because perhaps they were the voiceless. So even when we are talking about the zero emissions vehicles and etc., we always must remember that perhaps it's not emitting in your city, it's not emitting in your local area. But again, as long as we have coal power plants in the United States, in Virginia, or natural gas power plants, some sort of emission will take place. On observation, natural gas power plants might be less harmful than a coal power plant on site. Really, coal power plants are difficult to beat. But then the natural gas power plant, one aspect that it has is that it requires pipelines in most cases. And they're going to be deforesting a huge part of Virginia with the risks of leaks throughout the pipeline path and etc. These leaks 
besides some level of air pollutants, they can also pose some risks to explosions and etc. So electrification and getting away from fossil fuels is part of the solution. We asked Campos Lopez about what the local effects of climate change might be. And the answer hit very close to home. Climate change here will look like more floods, more ticks, and even hotter summers than we're used to. We are concerned about the potential impacts for our community. We're concerned about how our forests, how our rivers are going to be in the future and the amount of floodings, the amount of mosquitoes, the amount of ticks. So other local effects of climate change, for sure, the heat waves and the higher energy bills because of the very hot weather. For sure, we all care about that. But in a sense, we're talking about an issue that is going to affect several places of the world. Um, In a lot of occasions, it's going to affect places that contributed less for climate change. So I would say that two things. If Solid Zero wants to lead in terms of climate solutions, and I think we won't, I think that we have two obligations. One is to do more than what is being accomplished by municipalities that are not claiming that they are leading. So, for example, if the state is going to clean the electrical grid and etc., that's going to reduce the emissions of every municipality around the state. So when we are looking at our performance and seeing that we are doing well, but it's highly associated with what's happened at the state level, that means that every municipality in the state is doing that, even those that are not claiming that they are climate leaders. So if we're going to meet our climate goals in 2030, maybe in 2050, just because the state is going to meet it, then we are not leading anything. So I think that for us to lead, we must do better and we must be aware of what we're really accomplishing and what we are just following the, the stream. Finally, DeCampos Lopez says the United States should take responsibility for the fact that we've been one of the leaders in emissions and causing this climate crisis. And now we have to step up and be a leader in mitigating the harms. Being in a, one of the first countries to be industrialized and one of the wealthiest countries, the wealthiest country in the world, the largest economy and etc. the reality is that when the United Nations says that humanity must meet certain goals by 2030 and 2050 for us to not face the worst consequences of climate change, I think that if equity must be mentioned, we must remember that it doesn't mean that all the countries and all the municipalities should meet these goals. At the same time, I think that we should be aware, again, that some places of the world contributed much less to climate change over time. And for us, require everybody to meet these goals at the same time. It means that we're not being actable with our share of this responsibility. So I think that, again, we should lead and do much more than what it's the minimum necessary that the United Nations is asking. We should take leadership and do more. I think climate change can definitely seem like a really daunting task to tackle, but I think you shared a really great message about our need to actually stand up and lead. And I think that's really inspiring. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for caring about climate. Thank you so much for caring about that. Thank you so much, all the UVA students and other listeners. And thank you, Sarah, for conducting that interview with Cayetano de Campos Lopez. He's the Director of Climate Policy at the Community Climate Collaborative. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues here in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner-McGee. Our assistant producers this week are Tanisha Alston and Sarah Howarth. 
Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. <laughs>